Welcome to Wireless Future. Uh, this is episode 38. I'm Eric Larsson and I'm here as always with my colleague Emil Björnsson. Hello Emil, how are you this morning? I'm great and I'm feeling well sitting inside now when it's so cold outside in Sweden in this part of the year. Yeah, indeed. So any snow up there in Stockholm? Yeah, we have plenty of snow outside here. I can see through the window. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, we also got quite a bit here. So uh, great to be back recording, uh, Emil. Um, this episode, um, so the intention was that we'd talk about the 60 symposium that was held last month in Lund and that we both attended. Uh, so what were your impressions, Emil, from that symposium? Right, so this was a, a great symposium, I would say, and it was a three-day event. And I think in the last episode, we had like a panel discussion with a number of speakers. And I was thinking that I was able to gather a lot of good speakers in, in Stockholm for that event. But it was like three times more people in terms of great speakers there in mm. Lund. So it was a really great event, I would say. Indeed, I mean, the event had really an array of distinguished speakers and also a very good audience, I think. So I, I enjoyed a lot participating and I learned a lot of things. And the plan, I think, for today was that we'd talk about some things that we that we learned there. Um, so Yeah, exactly. And uh, as usual, uh, you can either watch us on YouTube or if you, are, uh, you only want to listen to this podcast, uh, podcast you can also find it on spotify and apple and google podcasts that's right so that's that might be good to know for for our followers that we are obviously on youtube but, but the audio track is also on all the major platforms google spotify and apple i think those are the three iml yes exactly and uh, yeah. yeah it's always great uh, to to meet people at conferences who are listening to the podcast and uh, we also realize that not all everyone is aware of that there are multiple ways of viewing and listening to this podcast. So thank you for listening. Mm, indeed. All right. So to the 60 symposium, Emil, mm. so how would you summarize your impressions and the main things that you learned? Right. So it was an all physical event. And I think this is really important these days, because otherwise, when there is a lot of possible online events, people tend to sort of log in and only listening to the things that uh, they are the most interested in. And then you might miss a lot of the things that are not within your main interest area, but uh, are really good insights. So I've been collecting my five um, uh, new insights that I collected from this event. And I think you hmm. did the same, right? Yeah, I also collected a few insights. I mean, indeed, I, I concur that physical events are really superior. Uh, and this one, again, was really uh, super useful and nice, I think. Um, so where do you want to start, Emily, with your insights? Um, shall we start with uh, sensing and positioning? Because that was a theme that spanned, I think, across several of the talks and presentations. Right. Yes. Yeah, so integrated sensing and communication or ISAC, as people like to call it, this is a topic that I think is one of the, the research topics for 6G that have actually turned in to become an important thing in the future. And it's sort of about adding new features to existing networks uh, for, for sensing purposes, because communication technology, we know what that is. And then we have the additional radar sensing and localization technology that have to a large extent been 
deployed in a different way. And uh, then on the one hand, you see people in academia writing papers about how you at the physical layer using exactly the same signals can do a little bit of communication, a little bit of sensing. Mm. Uh, but uh, I heard an interesting talk there from Ericsson, Stefan Parkval, who is uh, one of the leading researchers there. He was talking about their view on how to integrate sensing into communication systems. Mm. So what was their view? Right. So one of the important things there is that they were categorizing the integration to different levels, where mm. what I was just talking about was sort of the deepest level. So I think one could start with just saying, okay, we have certain sites where we deploy base stations today. What if we deploy some additional sensing equipment on the same location, but next to the base station? That mm -hmm. would sort of be the first thing. So co-located deployments. Mm. So you mean basically like a radar station sitting next to an access point? Is that what they meant here? Yeah, exactly. So so from that location, you might be able to send out some additional signals in order to sense the traffic in the, the environment around there. Typically in line of sight scenarios, you could send something around what happens there. Is there a lot of uses? Is there a lot of movements and so mm. on? Sure, but I mean, that sounds at the surface at least like a fairly rudimentary approach because you could use the same, you could use the signals from the access point to do the same thing now. Right. So the second sort of level of integration would be that you are actually using uh, the same site, but also the same spectrum. And mm. normally this kind of technology have been uh, using more millimeter wave frequencies while we have been used to using sub 60 hertz frequencies for communications. And uh, now when communication is also moving into those ranges, there might be the possibility of sort of using the same spectrum for both things. Mm. Then at the third level, we come to what you were mentioning, where you also use the same hardware. But so, I, I mean, Emil, yeah. using the same spectrum sounds a bit like a challenge because then regulations would need to like permit that you're using the spectrum to communicate and for like sensing and radar, right? So is that already, I mean, do regulations already permit that today or would that entail a change of regulations for the future? Um, I think it depends on what kind of frequency bands we are using. I would guess that if you start from using communication frequencies that are yeah. allocated for these wireless transmissions of data, then if some of the data signals actually contain contains known signals like pilot signals that you use for sensing purposes, you can certainly use them. That's uh, right. I, but uh, if you start to go into that, that you can disturb other kind of sensitive technologies, mm. then uh, I think the regulation will uh, be not permitting that. So it really depends on what band you're using, I guess. Right, because you could think of like for sensing that you want to probably blast as much power as is possible in every, in every possible direction, whereas for communications, you'll be more selective and you'll be informed to your users. Anyways, um, so that would be the second. Now you said the third way of integrating at an even deeper level. Yes, so that is to actually use the base station, uh, the same hardware technology, the same spectrum, the same location, obviously, because it's the same base station, but not at the same time or frequency. So you take some of your subcarriers in an OFDM system and there you, you blast the signals mm. that you're saying and you sweep around and look for, for different targets and then you use the rest for, for communication. 
And it seemed like Ericsson found that level to be the, the most important one, at least to start with, uh, to, to make the system work. Because then you can uh, yeah, add these new features without risking to destroy your conventional communication protocols. Mm. But I mean, that sounds like a meaningful approach, right? Without having thought too deeply about the question. Uh, but the, the equipment is already there. Regulations mm. permit that you use parts of the band for sensing. And provided you have like the spare capacity to to you can actually do so, then you'd send send some of your subcarriers. You'd send signals only for for sensing or for like a radar that just operates within the system within the communication system. Right, and uh, I think at this level they were also considering that you can have the liberty of designing your waveforms a little bit differently. Because if you only want to maximize the amount of power you're transmitting, you might like to send something that is more constant envelope, uh, no, no peak to uh, average power ratio, uh, which you usually get for data signals. And in that way, you can sort of increase your, your, your power level. While hmm. if you go deeper, you can say, oh, we use the same waveform. It is exactly the same OFDM signals uh, that we are using. It's just that on sub sub carriers, we, we send known signals. Mm. Mm. And then at the sort of deepest level, we do both of the things at the same time, at the same frequencies. We just say, okay, we send some data in this direction and we send some sensor signal in this direction, or we reuse the data signals. We receive them somewhere else or at the same location. And we know data signals, we use them as a known radar signal, even if it's actually where data. Mm. So actually reusing signals that are transmitted for communication purposes, also for sensing by receiving them either like in a bi-static setup, so you receive them somewhere else or, or with some sort of full duplex arrangement, I suppose, then yeah. uh, that sounds like an interesting direction to, to explore. Yes. And uh, I think from Ericsson's perspective, they were to a large extent viewing this as some new use cases that were sort of separate from the other use cases. So a, a way of sort of selling, oh, well, we can send data, but you can also buy this kind of uh, extra services. Uh, but the, the topic of sensing was also brought up by some other people in this forum. So uh, say Hink Wiemers, for example, that we had in the previous episode, he was talking about that, of course, with this sensing capabilities, you can also improve some of the things you're doing in your normal communication system. So uh, channel estimation kind of features could be improved if you can, to a better extent, track movements uh, from the sensing systems, then you can improve mm. channel estimation, predict things, and so on. Right, because I mean, in a way, channel estimation is a sensing problem, isn't it? Yes, uh, it is. And I think to, uh, often there are a lot of nice algorithms that you can use in, in theory uh, that we teach in courses. Then it is often like that, that you, in real systems, you want to sort of be a, you restrict yourself to sort of split up time and frequency in sort of ways where you, you don't have dependencies. You want hmm. the scheduler to be able to schedule a user whenever uh, the system thinks it's a good idea to do. So it might be good to use information that is gathered over time uh, about these devices. But uh, this will allow you to do some of these features that clever implementation might already be doing, but in a better way. Right, I can imagine in practice there'll be lots of practical constraints like latency constraints, for example, that the scheduler, uh, scheduler will, will have to handle. 
and uh, that could put constraints on when you actually can use this waveform for sensing and when you have to use them for communications in in order to meet this uh, latency and targets yeah hmm. but uh, i think the the main takeaway from my side there was that uh, yeah i think uh, localization and sensing will be integrated into the next generation of communication systems but possibly not in the way that most people are analyzing in academia by having physical layer problems where you do both things at the same time hmm. but uh, actually using the same hardware at different times or frequencies for these features that will for sure hmm. be there i think hmm. oh that's an interesting thing to know indeed yeah and you picked up something regarding positioning as well yeah so one thing i picked up was that uh, there's a lot of discussion now about uh, positioning using uh, or exploiting phase coherence between geographically separated access points. And that's a really exciting thing in my view, because as we know, if you have an array of antennas and you want to estimate, let's say, direction of arrival, then we know that the, the accuracy you can get is essentially like inversely proportional or to, to the aperture. Uh, so the larger the aperture, the better accuracy. Mm. Um, and with, with a large enough aperture, we can get angular resolution. We can also get depth resolution, as we know. And now if we can b build like a virtual uh, or, or array or, or an, uh, well, an, an, effect, an, an array that consists of antennas or access points that are geographically separated. So that would constitute like an, an array with an enormously large aperture. Then we could get, in principle, uh, extremely high resolution in angle and potentially also in, in depth or in, in range. And this, of course, requires the um, antennas at these uh, different access points to, to be phase coherent, which in itself is a major challenge. But given that we can we can actually achieve that phase coherence, then we could get extremely high resolution uh, down to essentially a wavelength. I mean, what happens here is that we basically measure the, the, the carrier phase uh, of, mm. of the signal uh, to these different access points. If you think of like the likelihood function for localization or the the the, the ambiguity function, then um, nominally without phase coherence, it would have a curvature that's proportional to the the uh, um, um, aperture per access point. But now that the access points can operate phase coherently together the likelihood of the ambiguity function rather becomes spiky, like a soccer ball wrapped in, in barbed wire with a spike, the distance between the spikes here or on the order of a wavelength um, mm. or, 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 or inver rather inversely proportional to the, to the total aperture constituted by the, all these antennas or access points together. Uh, so, so there was a lot of talking about that. And this is a fascinating prospect, I think, to, to build, to really use the carrier face from separated access points um, together. So is this like using a distributed MIME or cell-free massive MIME system uh, for positioning as well? That's right. I mean, uh, cell-free massive MIME or distributed MIME or distributed antenna system are all names for for, for the same, uh, all mean the same thing, uh, namely mm. access points or antennas that are geographically separated and they can operate phase coherently together. Right. So this is like integrated sensing communication or positioning and communication yeah, for these I guess it could networks. Be, I guess the positioning could be integrated with the communication somehow. But even if the system were used only for positioning, it's still quite fascinating because of the high resolution that you can get this way. Right. 
Yes, uh, and uh, you were saying from the beginning that sort of yeah, the the larger your aperture is, the, uh, the the better becomes the precision. Then, since you sort of have a huge aperture that might surround the mm. user, but there is big holes in between the access point. Do you create a lot of messy ambiguities oh, for, yeah. from Indeed. that or grating loads? I mean, loops you will, or... you will for sure. So. Um, again, I mean, what I said here is fundamentally if the signal-to-noise ratio is high enough, then the, the accuracy will be pro proportional to the uh, size of the, the aperture, which in the distributed case would be determined by essentially by the distance between the access points rather than by the aperture of an individual access point um, um, in, in itself. Um, so, number one, um, Signal-to-noise ratio would probably be have to be rather high for this to work in practice. And number two, there'll be a lot of algorithmic challenges in in actually finding the the position estimate. Yeah, it sounds like calibration might be one of the the issues here when the antennas are far apart. Calibration certainly will be one of the issues. I mean, because if these access points are are uh, so basically there are two two cases. Either the access points are driven by um, a common uh, clock or a common uh, frequency reference source. And uh, in that case, uh, one would have a, um, a, a somewhere an oscillator or a clock that generates this reference signal. And that reference signal would be distributed through a cable to each one of the access points. And uh, that way they would be all phase coherent. There would still be an unknown residual phase offset between them. But it could be estimated, for example, by using a uh, reference receiver or, or transmitter at a known location and then applying some algorithms. Uh, so that's the first uh, option. The second option is that the access points have uh, free-running oscillators that aren't face-locked um, to one another. And uh, then there will be a phase shift between the access points that drifts over time randomly depending mm. on how good quality these oscillators or, or clocks are. And this drift can be quite fast. I mean, for reasonably priced oscillators, we're talking about drifting halfway around the unit circle here in, in substantially less than a second. Um, so some sort of periodic recalibration would then be required. And it could be done using reference transmitters or reference receivers or in, in combination with bidirectional measurements over the air between these access points and so forth. And this isn't an easy problem. I mean, so uh, of course we have a similar problem of calibration for uh, um, for cell-free or distributed MIMO when we use the access points for calibration. But there we only need uh, joint reciprocity calibration between the access points. And that's much easier to accomplish because that can be accomplished by using an, a bidirectional over-the-air measurement between the access point without knowing their locations or the distance in between them. Whereas for positioning, we would need side information for this calibration to, to work out. But but that's a it's a fairly technical topic and maybe that's something we could save for a potential future episode to talk about in detail. But the main take home here is that uh, uh, calibration will be required and uh, that's a non-trivial thing to accomplish um, in practice. Right. So the so one of your point there is that if you deploy a distributor self-free MIMA system, uh, certain calibration uh, is already needed to make that whole thing meaningful to deploy. But beyond that, you need to calibrate it even further to, to utilize That's right. I mean, uh, that would be the most 
simplified way of stating the point here, I think that for cell-free massive MIMO to operate in TDD with reciprocity-based beamforming, uh, a certain reciprocity calibration is needed between the access points. And that reciprocity calibration um, can be done through over-the-air measurements, uh, but that isn't enough for uh, um, that isn't enough to calibrate the system for positioning. So then something something more is needed here that requires known mm. distances and or reference transmitters or receivers located at known uh, positions. Um, but again, this is a fairly technical topic that uh, we, we might want to return to. <laughs> sure. But uh, so this is certainly theory. Have people been able to do something like this uh, with some kind of practical uh, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I mean, and that was another thing that I learned at the and I was very impressive to see at the symposium. So, so co-located with the symposium, there was also the uh, elite 6G focus period where um, we had uh, three weeks of visiting scholars um, or visiting scholars who spent uh, three weeks there on site working together on, on many projects. And one project that one of the teams worked on was exactly on uh, positioning and synchronization for um, positioning using uh, uh, distributed antenna systems. Uh, so what he had done was that he had used experimental data from a system where uh, there were, um, I think it was uh, eight or 10 or something, distributed access points that were placed like known fixed locations. And then they had a mobile transmitter they could move around. And the goal was to estimate the position of this mobile transmitter and track it over time using carrier phase measurements to the access points. And these access points, they were all phase locked using a common uh, clock that was distributed through a cable. But they still had to work out this residual phase um, offset between the access points and estimate that jointly with the, with the, with the position. And this all worked and uh, it, it was really fascinating to see. Um, the, and, and impressive to see the work that they had done uh, during these weeks. Right. Yeah. I think it, to it is easy to, or not not easy in general, but it, developing theory is sort of one thing, but actually demonstrating that things are are working uh, in <laughs> in practice is really one of the, the big challenges yeah, as well. I, I would put it this way that I mean some of the theory that we de- tend to develop is just simplified and that it ignores a lot of practical phenomena that will be there and will have to be dealt with and some of which have a lot more like intellectual depth than you, it, what seems at the surface. Like for example I mean face offsets are, are easy in a way to model theoretically but they will be there and they will have to be dealt with. Face drift unless the oscillators are locked to each other. And there'll be other effects like drift of the sampling clock that uh, results in in a time shift between the samples that needs to be estimated and compensated for. And uh, um, there's a lot there in the algorithmic space that sometimes in the comm theory literature, I think we are um, ignorant of or not entirely willing to dig into, but which in, in practice often constitutes the limiting factor on what you can actually do. Mm. 
Yeah, I think uh, now when we are entering 2024, we sort of five years into 6G research perhaps. And th then uh, I hope that there will be more and more experimental works also sort of starting to, to validate these type of yeah. things. Because I think when it comes to technology transfer from academia to the industry, uh, if something is really groundbreaking, we also need to be the ones demonstrating uh, it in, in the lab that it, something works. Otherwise, the industry will not pick it up hmm. yeah so where do we go from here Emil uh, um, I think uh, we will talk a bit about machine learning machine learning so what was new in machine learning right so I was picking up some things regarding machine learning uh, that from a talk by Anna Perez Neira that was not ex actually focused on machine learning, but it was still very intriguing to me. So uh, as many others, I was studying about neural networks some years ago when, when the hype on machine learning was uh, taking off in the communication area. And this uh, name, uh, neural network or artificial neural network, is sort of demonstrating how you are uh, developing deep learning to be inspired by the brain. But then mm. when you are reading more and more, you realize that th this kind of connection to how our brain works, it is kind of motivational or vague. It's not like yeah. actually copying what the brain mm. is doing is what actually matters. Mm. Uh, but... Uh, the typical structure of a neural network is sort of, okay, you have a number of, of layers that do some linear processing of, of data. Uh, and then in between, you have what we call activation functions that do some kind of non-linear processing. And then you go to the next layer, do some processing and so on. And then you optimize what every such layer is doing in this linear processing part. But the activation function is typically something that is picked in advance. And uh, I think the whole name activi activation function is sort of inspired also by the brain, that neurons in the brain, they collect different signals. And then if they, uh, the signals that are reaching them is strong enough, it uh, is um, firing away uh, some signal to the next location. So it's sort of you want something that sends forward nothing and then it sends forward something according to a particular shape and there is often like nothing and then a linear uh, uh, yeah, version of the, the input. So you either block it or you send it through or there is some S-shaped or some, some different kind of shape there. Uh, and what Anna was talking about was what why do we actually predefine from the beginning or select what this activation function should be? Uh, do they need to have this kind of monotonically increasing shape or, or could it just be mm. any nonlinearity mm. there? Hmm. Uh, because uh, often w when you see works in this, you see, oh, we picked a reload or we use a sigmoid uh, function or this and that. And you ask the question, why did you pick this? Well, it worked. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it feels like this ought to be well investigated in the, let's say, hardcore machine learning literature, right? What activa activation functions that they would work well in, in, in practice. Yes. But so, I'm not sure uh, how well, yeah. Uh, exactly. So uh, I think there is a huge amount of sort of work on uh, what works and what doesn't work. Uh, still, uh, I haven't seen the things that uh, Anna was talking about, namely to 
parameterized disactivation function. So, so you were using a discrete cosine transform function, mm -hmm. to, which can sort of approximate a lot of nonlinear functions and have some trainable parameters. And uh, you can then also train these activation functions. Uh, and whether this gives you very useful new um, uh, kind of uh, degrees of freedom to design new networks or not, uh, I'm uh, intrigued to understand this better because it doesn't hmm. seem to be used very much. Uh, but it, it seems like a logical thing that you should do. Uh, so you start to wonder, why is this not the way that everyone is doing it? Right. Yeah, that's something I don't have really a lot of intuition for and that I would need to really read up on. But it sounds like an exciting prospect. You could actually optimize these functions in addition to the weights in the yeah. network. And at least there were a, a nice use case of this that she was describing. Uh, so there is this kind of learning over there where you have IoT devices that are uh, collecting some data and, and uh, send, report them up to some, some server. And mm -hmm. uh, one way there that she was noticing is that this uh, discrete cosine transform, this is essentially what you, the waveform you're sending in LoRa, which is sort of one of these IoT uh, communication systems. Right. Uh, so it's basically could, frequency yeah. frequency modulation right but in this like in discrete time yeah yeah so if you design a new network where every IoT device takes care of some of the layers and then they report their signals up towards the server and when doing that the signal sort of sent with this cosine transform so over the air you do this activation function and then you can have the final layers in the server uh, yeah, that's a real cool thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I was really sort of intrigued by, oh, this mm. all makes sense. Why are not people doing this? So so this is something I will really like to to look into more to to understand. Mm. So this is like federated learning over the air but in a broader sense, right? You apply nonlinearity yeah. on your signal before you you transmit it. And in this case the nonlinearity is this frequency modulation or discrete cosine transform. Exactly. Uh, so uh, whatever nonlinear function you can approximate it in this kind of way with, with a few parameters. So if you want to design activation functions that are not just something that is monotonically increasing with the hmm. predefined shape, well, this might be the way to do it. Right. Yeah, it's quite intriguing. I mean, this with machine learning, both the like enabling methods and theory and the, the applications of it. Yeah, and it's very much this, this kind of craftsmanship of figuring out what can be used to, to improve on, on previous works. Hmm. So did you pick up something regarding machine learning? Yeah, so there's a talk on reflecting intelligent surfaces, and they're using machine learning algorithm to train the way that the weights are adapted, because in a, in a reflecting surface or res, so it's actually re reflecting intelligent surface, or is it reconfigurable intelligent surface? People seem to use both, but it, it seems like the abbreviation res is, is in any case... Uh, <laughs> Um, adopted for both. So, so the idea was to, because in the reason then you have all these small atoms that need to be individually controlled. And basically for each atom, there is a phase angle or the load impedance that need to be set. So there'll mm. be like a humongous number of parameters that have to be tuned for the reason in order to, to reflect or scatter the signal into into desired, the desired direction. And nominally, 
I mean, if you have a transmitter and a receiver and a RIS, you would need to send as many pilots, orthogonal pilots, as you have atoms in the RIS. And that would cost a, a lot of resources because the RIS, by nature, it will have to be large and consist of many atoms in order to actually give any array gain. Um, and um, so that would cost a lot of pilot resources. But what we done in this paper was that they, they uh, optimized the machine learning algorithm to... The way I understood is like the algorithm basically learns what the environment looks like so that the RIS can be configured using only very short pilot sequences. And it was quite fascinating. I mean, because one of the hesitations I've been having a little bit to RIS is, is precisely this problem that you'll need a lot of training overhead to configure the atoms. And now if this could be done using very short pilot sequences, then in a way, I mean, the problem would be solved, right? Of course... Um, what the story maybe didn't fully tell is like, what if the environment changes? So even if I just change something small, I move this little uh, vase here this slightly away, then will I need to retrain then the algorithm? And how long will that burn in time be before the, <laughs> before the uh, algorithm actually delivers? And these short pilot sequences are enough to, to configure the RIS. But I found it to be an, a neat use case of modern machine learning algorithms applied to um, what I think we can argue is the the physical layer, really, of uh, wireless comms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, I was also sort of uh, thinking a lot about this thing with the, how many pilot resources you would be needing to reconfigure these very big surfaces, as you were saying. Mm. I think we uh, we wrote a paper about RAS about three myths and two critical questions. And I think one of the critical questions was how can we estimate these things uh, reasonably well when we have so many parameters? And Yeah, I, I mean, there's a scalability problem, right? Because for the reason to be useful, it has to be large, maybe in very large indeed. And when it's very large, it means that it has many of these atoms that need to be adjusted. So, so you'd need correspondingly longer pilot sequences in order to uh, to estimate a channel and, and learn this, train these coefficients. Yeah, and I think there are sort of two things that machine learning can do in this case. One is to sort of... Uh, learn a better estimator uh, so that uh, you use some information about the environment uh, to to boost your snr essentially so mm. you you only focus on estimating the important things and and get the better estimate of that one uh, then if you should also be able to sort of cut down on your um, number of pilots so you ignore exploring certain dimensions of the channels because you you know uh, something about how the different dimensions are connected to each other. Then you use even deeper knowledge there. And uh, I, I think one of my... Uh, I mean, the fact that uh, they were really able to um, re reduce the pilots immensely here is sort of showing that there is a lot of structure in the chance that they're considered. And uh, this is something one can possibly utilize also uh, classical signal processing methods, compressed sensing or uh, yeah, angle of arrival estimations and these type yes, of methods. Also I to mean, mm. Isn't it that, again, I mean, the algorithm basically learns what the propagation environment looks like. And, and, and say, I mean, for the sake of argument that the algorithm could learn perfect exactly what the environment looks like, then in principle you could like 
reverse, you could solve Maxwell's equation so you could ray trace or something so that you just need a single pilot symbol and the risk would know where, where you are located and then configure itself accordingly. So it all comes down, I think, to like how much of prior information that the algorithm either magically knows or has learned from um, measurements or from experimentation about mm. the environment. Yeah, no, so, so I think this is also an area where uh, I think experiments will be really nice to see in the coming years to to benchmark machine learning approaches compared to classical uh, line of sight estimation problems from our, uh, yeah maximum likelihood estimators with uh, array response vectors and stuff like that. And uh, possibly some mix of these things, like what people call physics-informed uh, uh, machine learning, where you sort of try to... Uh, extract knowledge that you know exists physically there, but then you also learn how to 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 improve the performance. Mm. So yeah, mm. it would be interesting to see how this works out. Yeah, I agree, and I mean experiments are really required here. I think because it'd be difficult to model a simulation environment accurately enough to really um, to to really capture all the fine details that these algorithms eventually that, that eventually will break or or make the the deal in terms of how, how well they they work but the the great thing is at least that i'm hearing more and more about people who are building these surfaces and uh, i mean building something that reflects in an unusual way is not that hard people have been doing that for a long time but also having the configurability features there so hopefully we will see this kind of things in in the coming years now mm-hmm. yeah neat okay so what did we have from here emil um maybe communication theory so mm-hmm. was there anything in like hardcore comms theory that you learned from somebody talks so uh, I saw for maybe the second time a talk by Muriel Medard uh, on GRAND, which is uh, an algorithm or approach to uh, decoding data that she has been developing together with people. And GRAND stands for Guessing Random Additive Noise Decoding. Guessing Random Additive Noise Decoding. Wow. Hmm. So how does this work? So... so I think I will start with describing just the premise of this, that uh, when you have a mobile device that is connecting to a number of different wireless technologies, then each one of these ones might use different types of channel codes to protect your data transmissions uh, from errors. And Mm. for the normal approach is that for your channel code, you develop an optimal or approximation uh, uh, with reasonable complexity, close to optimal decoder. So you utilize the structure of the code and try to to guess what is the most likely code word that was transmitted given what you you received. And uh, this is what we also teach in a lot of courses. The problem might be when you're sending a lot of data that you need to hardware accelerate these type of things. You need to build silicon that is doing the decoding. And then if you have six different types of codes, maybe different lengths and stuff like that, you might need uh, quite some different pieces of silicon to do all of these different decoding. And what uh, Medar tries to do is to develop one universal decoding algorithm that can be applied to a number of different uh, channel codes. So let me see if I understand this properly. Or, so are you suggesting here that the goal is not really to squeeze out additional 
fractions of a dB to uh, in performance, like to to get closer to Shannon capacity, but rather to build a decoder that could be more universal and function more easily with codes of different rates and with different, well, different channel codes simply. Yes, exactly. It's more like an implementation. So the advantages would be more on the implementation side. Yes, uh, exactly. So, so for that reason, they are both working with information theory to sort of prove that uh, certain uh, that you can decode codes in in uh, unusual ways that happen to be similar for different codes, and work with designing mm. one circuit that can decode a, a number of different uh, types of codes. One circuit that can decode a number of different types of codes. Are we talking about like short blocks or long blocks here? Do you know that? I mean, how because as far as i've understood it is fairly uh, uh short or medium sized codes but not extremely long that they have been doing uh, so far but uh, i'm not entirely sure about this mm. uh, but the i think the, the main principle then uh, that this goes into the name so guessing random additive noise the idea is is then that since every type of code that you design uh, have a particular structure the normal approach have been to utilize that structure and develop a decoder based on this. And uh, then that naturally leads to that you need a different types of decoder for different codes. Their approach is instead that instead of directly use the structure of the, the code, you instead try to guess what kind of perturbation might the noise have done. Uh, and, and the basic thing would be, okay, you send uh, 10,000 bits. Is it the first bit that is an error? The second, the third, and so on. This would be different types of noise er um, errors that noise can have caused. Mm. And then they uh, take your, your received signal, they subtract these different guesses of what the noise might have been, and uh, then they check uh, if each of these things happen to give you something in your codebook of original possible codes. Mm. Uh, so it sounds like a brute force kind of approach to decoding. I mean, is, I mean, I mean, isn't uh, okay? This is getting very technical now, but it seems like the number of error patterns you can actually get would grow like exponentially. Exactly. Um, so so yeah. I think normally the whole point with channel coding is that you you have a large number of possible bit sequences that could have been transmitted, but you only pick a small subset of that. And you try to make those ones as different from each other as possible to have a natural distance between the different code words in whatever way you measure that timing distance or something else. And then you uh, then utilize this distance between them so you can correct errors. So naturally, there is many, many more uh, possible noise sequences than yeah. there are signal sequences. That's the whole point. So, so the, the real uh, uh, requirement to make this work is that you can actually make a good ordering of noise sequences mm. uh, so that the first ones you're checking are with extremely high likelihood providing you with the correct decoding. Uh, so you Be somehow need to sort the error patterns according to their in descending order of likelihood somehow. Yes. And then try them one by one and relying then on, on the presumption that given that you try like a fixed number then with very high probability you actually capture the actual pattern that you 
that you saw. Hmm. Exactly. So, so that is really the essence there. And how you order this noise sequences, this is not uh, entirely transparent to me when I'm reading up on this topic. Uh, maybe it is just that, okay, if you expecting one or two uh, errors, well, then uh, you try to place them where you your uh, log likely ratios are, are uh, something regarding that. But uh, yeah, it becomes technical and it's not entirely easy how, how that is done. And I think this is also why the research is still ongoing on this topic. But if you can order noise sequences uh, in a uh, convenient way, you, you can try to subtract different ones. If you have a way of checking if the result is a code word in an efficient way, well, then you're home. Then you'd be home. Yeah, that I agree. Okay, yeah, that sounds like something worth reading up on and understanding in more depth, I think. Yeah, and I think also here, at least the nice thing is, as I was saying in the beginning, that this is not only information or communication theory. Mm. They are actually building these type of things. And I think their circuits are from generation to generation handling more and more codes. So let's see how far they can take this in the future. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Wow. Great. So anything else in comms theory at the symposium that caught your interest, Emil? Yes, I heard Christoph Studer talks about jamming and MIMO, which interests me because I was maybe together with you doing some research on this some some five or more years ago. And uh, I think one of the things that we are sort of now taking for granted is that in the next generations of wireless systems, we will use more antennas. And we will probably use more bandwidth, or at least uh, we want to, to handle many more spectral bands. And then people liked to cut down on the hardware resolution, or at least not scale it up in the same way. We know, okay, we've increased the bandwidth, we need to sample more quickly, but um, every sample needs a certain number of bits to describe the signal that we're seeing. And instead of having a few samples from a few antennas with 15 bits per sample, maybe we can get away with three, four bits per sample per antenna because we have so many antennas. And people like both of us have been working on this and demonstrated that, yes, it works. You can actually get away with this because the total number of bits is too many as long as you only consider the communication performance inside your band. Well, I'd say as long as you assume a priori that you're perfectly synchronized in frequency and maybe time, then, and you ignore like other effects, like for example, out of band um, transmitters that might come in as blockers. And uh, I mean, typically you'd have like a digital filter that a band pass or low pass filter that suppresses everything that goes outside of the band. And we assume that magically somehow all those aspects have been solved <laughs> in some other way, <laughs> then you're right. I mean, we can get away with a single bit or a couple of bits, a few bits of quantization per, per IQ branch. Um, but I think it remains to be seen whether these very coarsely quantized ADC transceivers can can really work in practice, all things considered. 
Yeah. And uh, this is really what, what Christoph was talking about. And maybe he his focus was on some malicious transmitters that try to jam your system and send some strong signal that would uh, sort of uh, be stronger than, than your desired signal. Right. Um, and then we're talking about the malicious jammer in band here, not even out of band, right? Yeah, because yeah, one of the exactly. difficulties with... Um, low resolution ADCs is to handle out of band blockers but now we're discussing like intentional jammers in band that could exactly. maybe be is that even worse or so, so how would that be handled yeah, here I, then? I think this is certainly one of the weaknesses with this low bit uh, A to C resolution and it sort of comes back to why have we been using a high resolution in the past? Well, to be able to protect ourselves against uh, blockers or jammers or whatever uh, that might show up there. And what is the solution to this? Well, to a large extent is signal processing. You want to sort of uh, remove these uh, jamming signals from uh, what you are observing. And then you have the issue that if you do this bef after you have sampled, you have this low resolution. And you can choose sort of your, the range of values that you have in your quantizer. So either you keep the same range as you would be having without the jamming, and then there is a risk that the jam is saturate, so you'll only see the maximum value all the time because right, of the jamming. Right, you just don't have the dynamic range here, I yeah. guess that is the, the core Exactly. Or you, you adapt your dynamic range so that you, you can actually see something but that will of course still mean that you have very coarse resolution on your your signal so, so that's you have right very... i mean dynamic range i think is just <laughs> simply proportional to how many bits that you have and then you can adjust your agc yeah. to shift yeah, like exactly. the, so, where so the, and the, mm, the window is located yeah. so, you, so you have very high step size that you still have very poor resolution so uh, what christoph was describing was two ways of trying to deal with this in the analog domain before you quantize the signals. And I think this is probably the way to go here. So one approach was based on that, uh, uh, yeah, maybe inspired by hybrid beamforming approaches. So you, you have circuitry that t takes your signals from the different antennas, and then they uh, is turning this into beams coming from different angular directions. So you look in this, in, in 30 degree, uh, in zero degree, plus thir uh, minus third degree and so on. And, and in these different directions, uh, uh, whatever way you build it up, you extract the signals. And since the jamming signal ma uh, mainly comes from some specific angles, you might be able to sort of throw away that directions and not communicate with anyone in, in the similar directions, but at least from all other directions, you can sample signals with low resolution that are still useful. But it's a pretty clever idea. I mean, it sounds like some sort of analog pre-zero forcing approach where you using analog electronics filter out the spatial window that you want to look at and then within that window you can apply it on your favorite digital algorithms but i guess a way to defeat this would be if the jammer comes in from many different directions or the jammer actually consists of like well an array or or, or a bunch of geographically separated transmitters that would be a challenge yeah. let alone if it if the jamming signal comes in from nearly the same angle or direction this wouldn't work either right but then of course the digital method will also have a hard time because with zero forcing processing even with infinite resolution of your ad converters 
it would be a challenge to separate out a jamming signal that comes in with a channel that's nearly parallel to the channel of your device of interest. Yeah, so, so there are certainly cases that will be so complicated that you can't deal with them. Uh, but Krista was also describing a, a way of doing this that was um, um, a little bit more uh, clever. So if the first one was just divide directions into different windows and, and throw away the directions where they happen to be a jamming signal, he also had some algorithms that are sort of like a feedback loop. You you try out uh, to sample different directions and, and then you feed back to the analog, okay, tune uh, the processing you're doing there in a way of trying to uh, get rid of some, some zero forcing. Uh, yeah, to implement some more zero forcing like based on where the jam actually is to, to fine tune things there. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it, at least if the jamming uh, signals are relatively stable in from which channel directions they are coming from, you might be able to, to make that work as well. Hmm. Right, but uh, yeah, I think it uh, remains to be seen if the bit resolutions will be reduced uh, in future systems or if this is more like an academic uh, thing that people yeah, are doing. Yeah, I concur, I mean, but there are great incentives in terms of power consumption to cut back on this resolution. Because huh? as I understand, I mean, it's like exponentially more expensive to when you add bits to, to your ADC than both in terms of the circuit complexity, but also in terms, maybe more importantly, of the power consumption of the circuits. Yeah, uh, definitely. So if this could be made work in, in, in reality, then uh, that would, should be highly useful. Exactly. So, so a lot of the other power scalings there are, are linear. So add another antenna, you uh, or double the number of antennas, you double the power from the ADCs and double the bandwidth and you double the, the power consumption. But uh, here it's actually uh, exponential. So, hmm. mm -hmm. Wow. All right. Very good. So I guess that was it for the comms theory then. Uh, anything else that we learned from the symposium? I think there was also a session on uh, spectrum use for the future and a couple of talks that dealt with electromagnetics and uh, energy efficiency. Uh, Want to talk about spectrum? Yeah, I can take my, my, my last of my five points here, which was related to Spectrum. It was also Stefan Parkwell from Ericsson who, who talked about this. And I think after this talk, there has also been the uh, World Radio Congress. Um, the countries of the world are meeting to discuss what kind of spectrums to use for different type of radio technologies in the future. And I, I think that there has been a lot of discussions about new frequency bands that can be used because it's always easiest to create a new like 60 technology in a band that, that haven't been used for uh, 5G or 4G or 3G before. Uh, so oh, so you mean like creating some, so like an entirely new radio interface then in a new band? Is that what you mean when you say creating a new like 6G? Uh, yes, uh, ex I think that's um, often when we are deploying say 5G, we do this uh, not by tearing down existing base stations and use their spectrum, but we actually allocate new frequency bands. Uh, so we can do a new deployment that use those bands, with, but still keep everything we had. And mm. if we should keep doing that in 6G, well, we need to find new frequency bands that we can use for 6G. And there, there have been all kinds of discussions in the past five years uh, from sort of um, uh, 
yeah, a lot to talk about terahertz uh, frequencies. So go beyond millimeter wave frequencies. So if the millimeter wave frequencies in 5G starts from, say, 26 and goes up to 80 gigahertz, then if you go beyond that, people call this sub-terahertz. So there's a lot of research going on there, and this is really a place where you are uh, challenging hardware design a lot. Well, not only the hardware design, I think you're actually challenging the physics as well, right? Because <laughs> the, the link budget is, is horrible, and also Doppler is so high, that'll be very difficult to do anything. Hmm. Well, uh, to, to, to channel estimates will be outdated very quickly, if there is any mobility at all. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, and I think the whole talk about uh, this uh, uh, sub-terahertz area in the past years have sort of been based a little bit on the misconception that whenever you are designing a new standard, we need to go up in frequency. So from 3G to 4G, from 4G to 5G, we were using progressively higher and higher frequencies. And then what will be the next thing? Well, we need to go beyond the millimeter wave frequencies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But... Ericsson's view, and I've also heard it from other companies, is that, uh, no, we should look uh, into the hole that is between the two frequency ranges used in 5G. So they have the range 1, which goes up to, say, uh, 6 gigahertz or so, so we, this we call the sub-6 gigahertz band. And then we had the millimeter wave frequencies that I was mentioning, which they call frequency range 2, or FR2. And in between there, uh, there is an interesting frequency band, uh, particularly between 7 and, say, 15 gigahertz. And this is the area that Ericsson called the centimeter wave band. And A centimeter wave. So centimeter wave is between, you said, 7 and 15 Yes, gigahertz. and you, you can probably yeah. take the term centimeter and say, yeah. when would you measure things from 10 to 1 centimeter uh, and say this is centimeter band. But I, I think they, they, they particularly like to use this term now for this uh, band that is in between the two ones considered mm. in 5G. Is, is that the same as the mid band? I heard that term being used also mm -hmm. in the past. Right. So mid band and centimeter band are, are the same more or less here. So 7 through 15. Uh, to, to some extent, I think actually uh, the mid-band have been, uh, say, between 2 or 3 gigahertz and up to the, uh, the maximum we have been using, so say 5, 6 gigahertz. But now, when they introduce this centimeter band, they start to call this the upper mid-band. So oh, the upper mid-band. Yeah, so so, uh, so that is also an alternative name there. So if most of the 5G deployment is in the mid-band, uh, if we will expand 6G into these new bands here, we will have 5G in the lower mid-band and 6G mm. in the upper mid-bands. Mm. And uh, uh, the issue is, of course, in general, <laughs> that frequencies are used for other kinds of services already. Uh, and there is a lot of things there for example, for satellite communications that is going on already in these frequency bands. So you really need to agree in the world on what frequencies to use in the future. Uh, but at this uh, World Radio Congress um, that was held uh, recently, uh, they actually started to take steps towards using some of the spectrum. And the way that this works is that you need to uh, at one congress decide on, oh, we will look into using these bands for new purposes and see how that will work with coexisting with existing services. 
And then four years later, when you have the next Congress, you can decide on actually changing uh, the use of, of Spectrum uh, for new services, if you think that works out. So, mm. uh, uh, yeah, what they did uh, was to say in 6.4 to 7.1 uh, gigahertz band that, that has been sort of a little bit earmarked towards 60 and to looking in if you can use that but there are also some other bands around that also going up towards 15 gigahertz that are sort of being analyzed now until the next uh, radio congress uh, mm. for coexistence yeah it sounds like a real challenge to get the countries in the world to agree on what bands to use for what purposes here yeah uh, and the world is also divided into some different regions. Uh, so it might be that there will be some frequencies that are used all over the world for 6G, but also that different regions will have some specific uh, frequency ranges uh, that are uh, specific to those ones. And uh, yeah, fortunately, in the past, it was really hard to build hardware for mobile phones that can handle many different frequencies and they were like the dual band and triple band uh, 2G and 3G devices but nowadays uh, uh, yeah you can build devices that functions over quite large frequency ranges so it will hopefully not be a problem from that perspective. Yeah I can imagine I mean this poses enormous challenges on uh, on the analog electronics you'll need uh, very flexible demodulators and mixers and um, bandpass filters let alone the antennas that I mean, typically antennas are tuned to particular uh, bands or, or carrier frequencies. Uh, so the more different bands there are to be supported, the more complex will 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 the circuitry become as well. Right. But uh, at least I think the interesting prospect here is that if we sort of double the carrier frequency from the 3.5 gigahertz we use today in 5G, then we can have more MIMO and we can have better resolutions for different kinds of positioning and localization uh, sensing services. Uh, and uh, we can still have reasonable range. But there might be some of these uh, very optimistic 6G goals regarding one terabit per second per device that mm. we will never reach in those cases. But maybe that is fine. Yeah, maybe that is fine. I mean, of course, to reach this terabit per second, you would have to go up in carrier frequency simply because you need a lot of bandwidth. And that bandwidth is only available up there. Then yeah. I suppose it could be debated how important those use cases really would be in, in practice and whether perhaps it's rather coverage and uniformity of the quality of service that will be important and then of course lower carriers have great advantages mm. yeah I, I fully agree so did you pick up anything when it comes to spectrum and electromagnetics yeah i mean so there was some discussion in one of the talks on energy efficiency which obviously in a way has always been important but it appears that it'll be increasingly even more important for 6g and I think part of this is just a consequence of the fact that if we build larger and larger MIMO arrays and use more and more bandwidth, there'll be like more and more signals to process. And numbers here are staggering. I mean, if, uh, so one number I, I heard was that if you have like a thousand antennas, which is 10 times more than a massive MIMO base station today, but, but not, not in any way off the wall, I mean, in terms of what could be built. And I think it's the vision of these large intelligent surfaces not reflecting intelligence, but large intelligence surfaces with actually active electronics at each antenna. Yeah, so MIMO arrays. Uh, 
yeah, MIMO arrays that it could easily compress like a thousand antennas and it would use them maybe like a hundred megahertz bandwidth. So then you'll have an interconnect in the backhaul would be on the order of terabit per second. And just the, the memory requirement just to store the channel estimates in an OFDM block would be like in the order of a gigabyte or, or gigabit or gigabyte. So uh, there'll be enormous demands on the signal processing here, which in turn, I mean, processing costs energy. Um, so uh, this will be imp an important aspect to actually design algorithms that are efficient and then to mm. build the products to not burn a lot of power in idle mode because as I come to understand, came to understand somebody like network equipment or, or radio base station access points you buy today, they burn a lot of power in idle mode. So it's like the, the power consumption isn't proportional to the data traffic load is rather that they burn a lot of power in idle mode and then when you actually transmit something they burn a little bit more but you would rather expect that when they are in idle mode they burn nothing and then the the power consumption grows like proportionally with the with the with the data traffic um, so to what extent that's a research problem or more of like an engineering implementation problem i don't know but i think we ought to be aware of the fact that energy efficiency is a is a major um it will is a major and will be a major issue in 6g and this concerns both the digital processing and handling all the data on the backhaul and all of that but also the analog front ends i mean and there are of course power amplifiers when the main culprits so so for example at the millimeter wave band as, as i understood the power efficiency of of a um, of an amplifier could be on the order of 10 percent which means that for every unit of energy we put in only 10% goes to something useful and the, the rest of the 90% becomes just burned or dissipates as heat um, so this is I think something to be aware of and something that we in comm theory research should always keep at the back of our head that um, yeah I, I think we we talked about uh, energy efficiency to some extent in the previous episode as well. And I think one of the things that ha people have been working a lot with with 5G is different kinds of sleep patterns where you try to turn off as much equipment as uh, possible to reduce these idle mode things. And and I think there are improvements happening there so that it, it possibly not going to be the weakest spot anymore, hopefully, in the 5G and 6G. Uh, but if the whole goal is to build a technology that transfers so much more data than the data, uh, yeah, the power consumption mm. will like, grow at least linearly with the data rate uh, in, in those cases. And then, uh, yeah, if you go up in frequency, hardware becomes less efficient. You have all these issues you described. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think a thousand antennas might sound far-fetched, but if you think about today, a base station with uh, roughly 100 antennas, and then you triple the carrier frequency up in the centimeter wave uh, range, and then three horizontally three times more antennas vertically that nine times more and you start to come up to a thousand so it's not at all far-fetched mm. no not at all i mean this is good that you underline that point um in fact um and also concerning power spent in idle mode and all of that i mean it isn't obvious to me how much this is 
really a fundamental problem like is it that we need better protocols on like higher layer to determine when to sleep and when to wake up or is it just that the software and hardware implementations need to be better so that i mean if you compare it to the the personal computer industry for example then it used to be that a windows pc could take 10 minutes to restart whereas the the macbook you open the lid and it's on and the question here is whether is it is it just a matter of implementing the the, the software and maybe hardware properly or is it a matter of actually resolving and designing new protocols for how these devices should should interact with each other and yeah. determine when they should go to sleep and when they should wake up and yeah i think uh, i have colleagues here at kth who have been working on using machine learning for this kind of thing so if you even if you develop protocols or, or implementation that have different sleep levels where you can go deeper into sleep. In those cases, you save more energy when you are idle, but it takes a longer time to wake you up and get everything up and running again. Then it's really, uh, you don't want to go to deep sleep when it's not needed. So you need to wake up and create delays, but you, you want to be in deep sleep as often as possible. So, so this is something where you can uh, try to learn something about the traffic and, and turn things off. And Yeah. Uh, absolutely but also i mean my point is that is there any fundamental reason for why it should take a long time to wake wake up from deep sleep maybe it does for for humans if you wake me up at two o'clock in the morning then it's like yeah it'll take me five minutes before i'm i'm like <laughs> in the game but uh, for for a base station you could have everything like prefetched in memory somehow so that once he wakes up it takes a millisecond and and, and then it's operating uh, yeah. So it isn't clear to me that it really has to take a long time to switch between these states. No, it could possibly be synchronization then of uh, analog hardware, like the uh, the thing we talked about earlier with uh, having distributed access points that should be uh, face synchronized enough to do some particular features. Yeah. Wow. All right. So... Um... Anything else, Emil? So there's one thing that I uh, was fascinated by, and I was brought up in a talk on uh, on on Reese again. But the angle here was that, so as, as I understand, I mean, Reese can be built from just components that we know from like classical an, an antennas, right? So you basically build patch antennas, and then you connect them to to a load with a variable impedance, and that in turn can be implemented using standard components like switches and diodes and other other things. But there's also this notion of meta materials or electromagnetically active materials. And um, as I understand, I mean, one use case for these materials is is a way of implementing a RISE. Yeah, but there are also materials that go way beyond what you would need for a RISE. So, for example, there was talking of... uh, uh, meta materials they could do like perform like signal limiting as I understood that meant simply blocking waves that have a higher amplitude than some threshold so there would be some highly nonlinear characteristics here and there was the notion of a Doppler cloak that um, I don't know if I understood this fully but my impression was that the meta material itself could modulate the signal to undo at least in part, the effect of a Doppler shift. Um, Were you able to um, grasp, maybe better than me, these concepts? It sounded like super exciting and it was really something new that I had not well thought about or or even known about beforehand so much. 
Yes, I think you picked this up from a talk by Peter Popovsky, and I've been working a little bit with him on some papers in the past. I know that he sometimes talks about non-linear propagation environments. And I think, as you were describing, you can view each element in this risk as, so it receives a signal and then it has this impedance. There's a circuit that is sort of where the impedance might be phase shifting the signal before it gets reflected again, depending on what impedance level you have, and it might change the amplitude and stuff. And in principle, you should be able to put other kinds of analog components there as well that could be processing the signals. And I think one option would be if this kind of uh, impedance is sort of fluctuating, it starts to give you uh, the uh, a nonlinear behavior that could, for example, also modulate the signal and move it in frequency. So uh, I think uh, that the Doppler cloak is really about that, okay, the signal is shifted in frequency because of Doppler shift, and then you let the material shift it back. Shift it back, <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this again, this sounds super exciting. My only hesitation now being a little conservative is that we're introducing non-linearities and we're introducing time variation, right? So we work so hard to get rid of or minimize the effects of non-linearities, for example, in, in, in power amplifiers. And we talked earlier about this ADC converters where um, obviously the, the less resolution we have, the more of a non-linearity there will be. And one major, w one reason for that is to avoid out-of-band susceptibility to blockers out-of-band or avoid generating in a transmitter than generating out-of-band radiation, right? So now if we introduce metamaterials that are non-linear, then it sounds to, seems to me that suddenly we could create all sorts of new problems with out-of-band uh, radiation and out-of-band compatibility yeah. <laughs> that's not clear how to handle. and. And it, also, if we start introducing time variation, then we'd break reciprocity, right? I mean, what if we work so hard to ensure reciprocity because that's what makes massive and, and cell-free and distributed MIMO work with time division duplex and reciprocity-based beamformings that we can rely on the fact that the propagation environment is reciprocal and that's a fundamental property of electromagnetic propagation as long as there aren't any non-linearities or as long as there isn't any time variation or some oddball materials that can, they can break reciprocity but we work very hard to ensure this reciprocity now we would put up meta materials there that start to fiddle around with time variation of their characteristics and non-linearities that would break this all this apart so in any case this is super super exciting um, technology yeah. i think to learn more about yeah, there is certainly opportunities of messing up a lot uh, in your wireless communication systems by introducing nonlinearities, which we usually want to avoid. Uh, we, we recently wrote a paper just about the fact that uh, two, if two telecom operators deploy one RIS each and they start to fine-tune each RIS for their own purposes without caring about the other uh, operator, then even if there is no signal leaking between the two bands. Mm. They are changing each other's propagation environments. They are changing the <laughs> propagation. And then we're talking about still, I mean, well, I mean, Aries is time variant, but on a very sm slow time scale, right? But it's, uh, as far as I understand, substantially linear. It, it doesn't introduce non-linearities, but it, it does introduce a very slow time variation. But even then, um, without any complicated uh, metamaterials with non-linearities and all of that, 
um, you could uh, create a complete uh, havoc in uh, in the ether. Yeah. Yes. So I think wow. the the paper that I wrote with Peter on this uh, was sort of based on on a very uh, long set of sort of uh, maybe unrealistic assumptions. But suppose you have an abundance of of bandwidth, you don't really care about uh, causing interference to anyone else. Maybe this is terahertz or whatever. Uh, and then uh, we talked earlier about the the issue with channel estimation that the more uh, different um, uh, elements you have, the more parameters you have to estimate. But what if you have different groups of elements that oscillates in different ways, and instead of trying to uh, cancel a Doppler shift, you actually just want to move the signal in the frequency domain, so the receiver sees it at a different frequency. Then all of a sudden you can transmit in one band and you can observe it in multiple bands at the same time, and then you can estimate all these parameters at the same time. Uh, yeah, it's quite fascinating. I mean, there's an, like entirely new possibilities that open up here. Yeah, whether there are gains or not is a different question. But I think this is also what we in academia should do, explore what you can possibly do uh, physically and if there is any gains from it. So that's right. Yeah, sounds like an exciting research direction uh, to go for the future. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. All right. So... Maybe it's time to wrap up here. Yes, exactly. And uh, I hope you have also been, uh, as a listener, as excited about some of these new topics uh, as, as we have been. So thank you very much for listening. Yeah, that was a fun session. Thank you, Emil. <laughs> <laughs>